So here we are. You, you do not know this, but I have been waiting for this day for over a decade. This very day. Because today is the day I get to tell one of my favorite stories from church history. Thank you. Yes. Okay, history people. And it's my favorite, it's my favorite for two reasons. First, it's because it reminds us that as Christians, we've been arguing about what Jesus meant for as long as we've been calling ourselves Christians. We do this very well. And two, it's my favorite stories because the two main characters have funny names. And so I like that as well. Now, it takes place in a Benedictine monastery in Corby, France, in the 840s AD. No one knows about France, that's right. <laughs> and there was a monk by the name of Pachesis Robertus. Radbertus is his name that we know him by, and Radbertus was named the abbot of this monk. He's the head of the monastery in 843, and this was about 10 years after he wrote his most famous book, De Corpore et Sanguine Domini, which means anyone... Huh? Concerning the body and the blood of Christ. Concerning the body and blood of Christ. So in his book, Redbertus, and by the way, I, I do love his name, Redbertus. It makes me think of like a skater monk in the 80s named Bertus, and everyone's making fun of his name. Well, come on, Bert. And he's like, no, not Bert. I'm Rad Bert, right? Rad Bertus. That's an actual skating monk. Um, Rad Bertus. So anyway, the main, this is why I like their names, because they send me on trails. But the main thrust of Radbertus' book is that in the moment, he says, in the moment when a priest or a pastor blesses the bread and the, and the cup, the wine of communion, in that moment, Radbertus says, it becomes the actual physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. Because you see, Christians had been arguing about when the bread and the wine become Jesus. Do they become Jesus right there? Do they become Jesus when they're in your mouth? Do they become Jesus? Like they were very fixated on when that becomes the body. He said the elements become nothing but the flesh and blood of Jesus. Well, around the time that Radbertus became the abbot, another monk at Corby wrote a book, coincidentally enough, it was called De Corpore et Sanguine Domini. The guy, this guy's name is Ratramnus. Ratramnus. Radbertus and Ratramnus. As a child of the 80s, I would rather be rad than a rat, but nonetheless, here we are. Ratramnus, you see, he argued that there was no way that the wine and that the bread were actually Jesus' physical body. He's like, I can see it. It looks like bread. It looks like wine. There's no way that this is. He said, rather, Christ is present in the bread and the cup, but only spiritually. Like they're a symbol that connects us through the mystery of faith with the body and the blood of Jesus. And it was like a medieval smackdown. Like, could you imagine, teachers, could you imagine like writing a book that argued the exact opposite of your principle and then naming that book the exact same name of the book that your principal wrote or your boss wrote? Like that, like it, it had to get awkward at the Abbey when that book came out. And confusing, like are they not talking because they're mad at each other or are they not talking because, you know, they're, they're, they're monks and they took a vow. 
And to make matters worse, like the emperor at this time was Charles the Bald, another unfortunate name. Charles the Bald had commissioned Retramnus to write his book. The emperor said, oh, I read this other book by your boss, but I want you to write a book to tell me what really happened. So eventually, Radbertus leaves the monastery. He resigns from the abbey and lives in exile because things were getting too tense in Corby. And they didn't get any easier because eventually Radbertus's position that the Eucharist, communion, is the actual physical body and blood of Jesus Christ, it becomes the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And Retramnus's book was banned. Until, like all rats, you know, he never really went away. And so some people stumbled across a copy of his book when they were protesting against the Catholic Church in the 1500s. And Retramnus's view that the bread and the cup aren't Christ's physical body, actual body and blood, historical body and blood, but rather through the mystery of faith, Christ is in, through, with, and under the bread and wine. Retramnus' view became the foundation of the Protestant view on communion. 700 years of arguing, and more, of arguing over what Jesus meant when he said, then he took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given to you, do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup is poured out for you and is the new covenant in my blood. That's what Jesus told us. That's what Jesus left us with. And for all those years, we were arguing back and forth. People were not talking to each other. People were writing books against each other. And To be honest, we're still arguing about communion today. Humans are ridiculous people. And because as Christians we're all too human, we can be pretty ridiculous at times too. And sometimes I wonder how many times Jesus just looks down at us, shakes his head like, no, you dummies. I meant this, not all that silliness you've been fighting over. Good grief. Then again, Jesus is used to it. In our scripture today from the Gospel of Luke, it's chapter 13, Jesus basically walks into a synagogue and right into the middle of another ridiculous argument, this one over what Jews could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. And by the way, Jews and Christians are still arguing over what we should do and shouldn't do on the Sabbath. Whenever I forget something that I need for a Bible study at night, I argue with Hobby Lobby over whether or not I should be able to purchase that on a Sunday. (laughs) But here's what Jesus said. This is Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. Now, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then, there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for eight years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, woman, you are set free from your ailment. And when he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, 
kept saying to the crowd, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured and not on the Sabbath day. How many times have we said that to our kids? You've had all week to get this done. <laughs> and you're going to do it today. But the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath day untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it to give away to give it water? So ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? And when he said this, all of his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all of the wonderful things that he was doing. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, speak to us today on this, our Sabbath day. Speak into our hearts. You know us. You know who we are. You know what we need. You know our very being. And so give us each a word that might release us from all that holds us captive. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen. So right away, Luke lets us know that something is about to go down because Jesus is teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. The first time we heard Jesus teaching in a synagogue on a Sabbath, it was in his hometown, and he read from the prophet Isaiah. He read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he gave us that epic mic drop, right? He says, this scripture has been fulfilled today. The good news has come. Restoration is here. Captives are released. The oppressed are set free. And if you remember... That day did not end well. They tried to hurl Jesus off a cliff for not healing them right then and there. And so the next we hear, Jesus casts out a demon on the Sabbath in Capernaum. And on another Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples plucked some grain from a wheat field, and they ate it. And the Pharisees, that's when they first tried to call out Jesus for doing work on the Sabbath. They're like, hey, you can't do that on the Sabbath. That's work. And Jesus said, we're hungry. We got to eat. Messiah's got to eat, yo, and he gets the grain. And the next time, Jesus, he's teaching in the synagogue, and the Pharisees are watching him. They're watching him, and there was a man there with a withered hand, and Jesus heals that man in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees, they're ready to pounce, but before they could say anything, Jesus asked them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save life or destroy it? And so they didn't say anything. Because Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew that this was exactly the kind of thing that the Pharisees and the keepers of law liked to debate. What did God mean by the commandments? What did God mean by all those laws? What does that mean for us today? How are we supposed to honor our Lord? How are we supposed to exactly, how are we supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength? Because remember, these are the Pharisees. Jesus had two groups of people that we hear a lot about of when he's running up against Jewish hierarchy, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the Cliff Notes version of these groups says this. The Sadducees, you can think of them as the temple elite in Jerusalem. 
They've, the focus of the Sadducees' faith, and really, if you, if you dig into it, their livelihood, was focused on the sacrifices, the worship, the daily life in the temple in Jerusalem. The Pharisees began to develop as a group when Jews moved further and further away from the temple, so they couldn't go to the temple at every day, much less every festival that they were required to go. And so synagogues began popping up. And the Pharisees, away from that temple, had to figure out, like, well, if we don't have the temple, what is the center of our faith? What is the decider of when we're holy and when we're not? And so for the Pharisees, the law, the Torah, the commandments, the rules given by God through Moses, they become the focus of their faith life. This is what tells us if we're doing it right because we can't give a sacrifice like we're supposed to. So what can we do? If you can't get to the temple to connect with God, what other measure of holiness is there? Scripture. And when the temple was destroyed for the second time, 30 years after Jesus, guess who basically saved the Jewish faith and kept it alive for the next 2,000 years? The Pharisees. Because they'd been laying the groundwork for a faith without a temple, but with Scripture with law and Torah, commandments, and it continues to define Jews to this day. The synagogue today is still the heart of the Jewish faith. And so, in fact, not long after the Jewish temple was destroyed in Rome in 7 AD, the the Mishnah was written. The Mishnah in the Jewish faith is a voluminous collection. It goes on and on and on of commentary. Like you thought 613 laws in the Old Testament were a lot of laws. They have to talk about each and every one of those laws. And when you read it, it gets added to over time. So the Mishnah is not just the original thoughts on the law, but it's other rabbis and other scholars' thoughts about the other rabbis and other scholars' thoughts about what the Bible says. And it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And one of these volumes is about what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. Here's what God said about the Sabbath. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord God has commanded you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. That's straight from the Ten Commandments. That's what he says. (laughs) This is how you keep it holy. That's all we get. Keep the Sabbath holy because God rescued you, released you from Egypt. So what does that mean exactly? For centuries, Jews were trying to figure it out. They're arguing and debating, and when the temple fell for the second down time, they wrote 39 categories of what you can and can't do on the Sabbath, things that are considered work, things like planting crops, mending clothes, riding, building, lighting fires. Can you or can't you take your ox to drink on the Sabbath? Can you or can't you? heal on the Sabbath. One of the debates was, well, if it's God that heals, really you're not doing work on the Sabbath. It's God that's doing the work on the Sabbath. And you notice the first time Jesus healed on the Sabbath, he didn't touch the man. He let God do the work. Jews, even today, are still debating exactly what it means in an age of cars and technology and 24-7 quickie marts. What does it mean to keep the Sabbath holy. I remember when we lived in Pittsburgh, we lived in an Orthodox Jewish community, and on the Sabbath, you would see all the, the Jewish, our Jewish neighbors walking the streets, not driving, and there was this great kosher Chinese restaurant, because they weren't cooking, so they would go to the Chinese restaurant down at the bottom of the hill. 
other, my friends who were Jewish, we were eating riblets on Sunday, <laughs> on Saturday. We're still arguing. They're still arguing about what it means to keep the Sabbath holy. So Jesus knew what he was walking into when he walked into yet another synagogue on yet another Sabbath and noticed yet another child of God, a daughter of Abraham, in need of release. Only this time, the leader of the synagogues was ready to pounce. And he says, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, not on the Sabbath day. But Jesus, he turns it right back with a question, right? He plays their games, the, the argument game. He says he engages in this debate and ought not, I love that, ought you, there are six days on which ought you ought to do this. And he says, ought not? This woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 young, long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? Like, what better day than the day that we're supposed to remember that we were set free as a people from Egypt? What better day to be released from bondage than the day we remember that God released a people from bondage? On another Sabbath day, Jesus told us he came to set people free in Egypt to release them from captivity. On another day on a mountain, God told Moses to keep the Sabbath holy. Why? Because the Israelites had been set free from slavery and from captivity. Man, Jesus is good, isn't he? So good at reminding us how easily we turn what we think God said we turn it into that, when really Jesus is like, no, it's been this all along. It's been this, not that. We're so good at turning a few rules into volumes of rules and opinions about rules and debates about rules, turning this into that. Jesus is so good at shutting this down because he's Jesus, and he makes it look easy. He makes the Pharisees, the keepers of the law, the leader of the synagogue look silly. How could we get it all wrong? How could this leader not see that she was being set free on the best day to be set free? But we've been doing it ever since. The disciples did it. They kept arguing about unclean people and who deserved to hear the good news that Jesus proclaimed and fulfilled. Robertus and Retramnus, they did it. They argued over when and how and where exactly communion became Jesus. Was it before or after we chewed him? That was actually part of the debate. <laughs> there are letters about whether or not we can chew Jesus. They tried to explain away the mystery of faith. That's why it's a mystery, people. <laughs> God moves in mysterious ways. That's why God is God. That's why Jesus is the Messiah and not us. And we're still, though, debating and arguing and breaking apart the body of Christ for ourselves because we're trying to explain and control and limit and then own the mystery of faith for ourselves. And instead of releasing people from their bonds, instead of setting the captives free, we as a people of God end up adding more chains and more locks and more prisons into the mix of our faith. And when we do that, we miss the whole point. Because when we get so fixated on that, we miss the people right in front of us. Like a daughter of Abraham standing in front of us, bent over from years of suffering, crippled from years of bondage to a disease that has ravaged her body, that has ravaged her life. And while they're over there arguing about whether or not she should be set free on the Sabbath, 
We're missing people standing in our midst, crying out for release, crying out for the very thing that God gives us, the very thing that God told us to remember by keeping the Sabbath holy. We're arguing about it while people right in front of us are desperate for it, crying out for the very thing that Jesus proclaimed in that synagogue in Nazareth, the very thing that Jesus' body was broken for, and we're arguing about why and how and who we're going to share his broken body with. And make no mistake, the Pharisees, by the way, had nothing on being argumentative compared with us today. Like sometimes it feels like all we do is argue. Like if you have an opinion, I am mandated to have the opposite, even if I've never thought about that subject before in my life. Sometimes like it feels like the news is no longer news. It's just arguments. Politics is no longer governing. It's just arguing. Social media is so argumentative, it's anti-social media. We can't even watch sports without arguing about goats. That's an argumentative goat right there. We can't even send our kids to school without arguing about what they should wear, what words they should hear, who gets the privilege of going to what school. And in the meantime, there are people in front of us, kids in front of us, our parents in front of us, struggling, our neighbors in front of us crying out, people in front of us hurting, being held captive, yearning for release. And here in our sanctuary, in our synagogue, which means our assembly place, it's like Jesus is standing here saying, what's she going to do? Are you going to keep arguing? Are you going to keep making more rules and binding more people up? Are you going to keep holding other people captive? Are you going to get back to sharing the good news that my people, all people, have already been set free? They just need to know and see and hear what God has done. Amen. Amen.